Welcome to Wrapping PE. I'm your host, Stephen Buller. This is the podcast where we explore precarity, pedagogy, and physical education. This podcast is dedicated to physical educators of the future, past, and present. I have the pleasure of having Dr. Blackshear join us to discuss some of her works and perspectives on health and physical education. I'm just going to read off of her website really quickly. Dr. Blackshear has made a global impact by working around the world to improve the quality of life for others, recognizing the discouraging health statistics in the United States, particularly among females and people of color. Dr. Blackshear focuses on research that confronts health and physical activity disparities and inequities in education that disproportionately affect black women. This is going to be a good one today. We're going to talk about her Shape So White article and kind of go into more of her perspectives and what she thinks we should be doing. Here we go. So for which is better for you, dogs or cats? I'm not a, an animal or a pet person, but I will go with dogs. You can always go outside the uh, categories, but... <laughs> I'm still shocked nobody has definitively said cats. <laughs> cats can't protect you. Uh, it's true. Um, yeah, I, if, if I had to have, a, if I was forced to have a pet, it would be a dog. Nice. Um, the next one, which is better for you, coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> it's still 100% dogs and coffee. There's not been, <laughs> there hasn't been an episode. I drink both every day, but coffee is the winner. I'm just really, now I'm wondering when the first person's going to say cat and tea. <laughs> I never thought like these two questions would go this deep. Um, what is your all-time favorite physical activity? Ooh, that's, that's kind of morphed over the years. Um, so I don't think I have a favorite I think I have favorites and those will probably be um, as a player basketball volleyball and tennis and I like to run um, and as an observer probably basketball and tennis yeah I can respect that it was too short when I got to high school <laughs> <laughs> well so I didn't pick up baseball. tennis until I was I, be, I was an adult you know, and I love it now. I mean, it's more lifelong. You don't need a whole team. And um, it's just not as physical as basketball. I wish I had the time to play tennis. It's a, it was very enjoyable, but half the time finding somebody to play with has been an issue. What do you believe is your purpose as an educator and as a human? Professionally, which, which, is closely tied to my personal, but I define myself as an equity scholar. I have been a fighter of equality, equity, and social justice since I was a kid, um, just simply being a byproduct of my parents and my experiences growing up in Detroit, Michigan. And so they, I think they really did a good job of instilling um, pride in being black recognizing and acknowledging that I was going to be, I was going to face different obstacles um, simply because of 
race and or gender. And I think they did a good job of pre preparing me for challenging situations, whether it's work, school, and they taught me how to advocate and speak up. And so I'm at a point in my career now where I'm not only speaking up for my adult children now, um, but I can really speak up on behalf of children's, children in K-12 schools and hopefully continue or influence peak candidates to make positive um, changes in our schooling and physical education. And um, hopefully that extends to society. I, I kind of look at that as like the educator's educator. So like trying to change everything and that's, yeah. it's definitely an awesome thing to strive for. Yeah. All right. So this is the point where we're going to discuss your paper. And the first question I had just two part. Okay. What is the origin story of this article? What inspired you to do the research on teacher of the years in shape? Um, a friend of mine, Dion, I can't even think of Dion's last name right now, but we were in graduate school together and we, um, we both finished at UNC Greensboro and she had, she was researching athletes, um, at, postgraduate athletes. So they were track athletes in college. And then Deanne Brooks, I couldn't think of it, Deanne Brooks. And she used a word called me search. And I don't know if she came up with it or, but that's kind of how my life has been guided. Um, I see a problem that is affecting me, other people, or that impact or negatively impact black children. So Dylan Landy and I actually were like joking around. We were looking over the, the teachers of the year. And I think this might've been 2017. Um, we were like hashtag shape so white. And that's how the conversation came. And I said, hmm, let me explore this a little bit further. And so that was the impetus of the investigation. And it, it, it was a surprise. I, I still, I, you heard the unplugged, um, my response there that I was shocked. I could not believe that there were no black district level or national level teachers of the year. And so that became basically the platform of, of, of starting to look at other issues within Shape America, um, which is very reflective of the educational system in the United States. They're not unique, um, but it was, it was outrageous, <laughs> that outcome. So that's what led me on that path in particular. I could imagine how that conversation was going with Dylan. <laughs> I haven't talked <laughs> to him in person in a very little bit. Interesting um, dialogue between us. Yes, he was uh, quite the person to listen to in uh graduate school it was uh <laughs> taught me quite a bit outside of the classroom which was awesome um i guess i'm gonna start off with dr mary rose reeves allen i actually don't ever recall being exposed to her undergraduate graduate and then when i was reading your article she like jumped out at the page at me and i was like whoa who who is this person this is like perfect like 
I wish I would have known about her earlier. That would have influenced me more. The first quote that you mentioned, it reads, Yet throughout all this history, very little attention is paid to Alan's pathfinding pedagogy. What made her pedagogy so pathfinding? Well, Dr. Allen was a big um, proponent of inner beauty. And if you look at her work on the surface, it might seem like, oh, she was all into this pageantry. She ran these beauty pageants. Um, but she trained over 80 Black female physical educators at Howard University. And she taught them that inner beauty comes first that you can't convey or display external beauty until you work within. And so I think that is very forward thinking versus the traditional sense of, of, of pageantry where you know women are basically objects to be desired based on beauty alone and not quite anything of substance. And so I think that's one of one of her one of her contributions, in, in particular to Black women, who often receive negative messages about their beauty um, from externally and internally. And so I think that that's pathfinding. I also think that just the even though there were fewer opportunities for women, especially Black women. Um, I think that she was able to, to reach, you know, 80 female Black physical educators who then were able to instill those same concepts and messages to the students that they um, taught, especially during segregation when they were only teaching Black students. So I think that her, the inner beauty is one of the, one of her key um, philosophies that we can take away moving forward. When I was reading that, it reminded me of the podcast that I was observing with uh, Justin Schlater and Dave Carney mm -hmm. around the horn. I remember you mentioning affirmations. Like, is that a big proponent of kind of her philosophy and pedagogy? Definitely. Yes. Yeah. And that, um, Basically, I think it, it is enhanced when it comes from someone who is from the same racial um, and gender group versus getting validation from the opposite sex and heterosexual um, environments um, that here was a woman affirming other Black women. And she also was instrumental in getting Black women or women in general to be physically active, which historically, you know, women were, you know, shunned or discouraged or we're, you know, others, we're, we're, we're what would I say? The influence is elsewhere, like yeah. dance and gymnastics only um, versus team sports and more physical, physical um, activities. Although she was a proponent of dance, I think some of the options were limited even during that time or during that time. So, but I do think that the inner beauty, um, she realized that it was, they were all interconnected and you couldn't have one without the other or without the others, so to speak. Yeah. I um, ended up after reading that, just 
Google searching like and found like some of her stuff on Howard and just reading and there's not a lot yeah there was like I think one document and it just had an outline of all her works but I couldn't find any of her works yeah it's not a lot in fact after that around the horn podcast there were two were there two on that call no, Kinesia was on that call, who was a past um, Teacher of the Year in Maryland. And then there was the first Black female Teacher of the Year this year, um, LaDondra, I think that's how you say her name, out of Georgia, out of the Southern District, she was the first. So they sparked the desire to write a paper on Black female physical educators. So I'm going to try to find more information on Dr. Allen and see, um, let them tell their stories and their experiences as, as black female physical educators and um, who earn teacher of the year. That sounds, uh, well, I look forward to reading that um, just to expand my <laughs> mindset. And I mean, as we kind of discussed before the podcast, a little bit of improving the diversity equity definitely needs to happen like just teaching in Philadelphia, just visually looking around at like the population of teachers and how for, I don't, I think it's still a black majority city, but still the schools are white majority. Yeah. And I can, and who's in power, like those, the, 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 the power structure is critical. And I mean, even if you look at the attorney general in Minnesota, who's black, you know, and I wonder, would the outcome look different? Would would a white AG or a non-black AG attorney general um, have come up with the same outcome? Would 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 all four police officers be arrested? Um, and so I think that when you're in a position of power, you are able to make hopefully equitable, unbiased, even though we all have our our biases, biases to really make change. And I do think that all of us have blind spots, but I think when you're coming from a, a privileged majority, there are a lot of blind spots. There are a lot of blind spots. I mean, just to relate to Shape America's demographics, even our own, um, city-based PSA FERD, which I'm on the board. It's like majority white. I think there's just one black female. And ever since reading Shape So White, that really bothered me. And I mean, mm -hmm. I always thought it was weird to begin with because there's just not enough people engaged at like that community level anyway. But yeah. like, it's just very apparent now how wide the gaps are and like how much yeah. we need to fill in. Yeah. And, and it's apartheid in, in many cities. Mm -hmm. you know, here you are in a predominantly black city, predominantly black school system. And yet the people in power are the minorities actually in that, in that space. And that, that's a problem. And so um, people need to be willing to share the wealth. And just because black and brown people may, you know, finally get a seat at the table 
doesn't diminish a white person's contributions. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is a lot of fear that black people will do the same, but that if, if you look at history, I don't think that that theory will be proven if that were to happen. So, yeah. I agree. It's definitely a lot of fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Let's see the next quote I had, which I think is kind of a good point to look at and continue from the discussion as Verbruggy, I probably butchered that up, pointed out. Like some... Verbruge. Ver- Verbruge. <laughs> yeah. I, did I say Verbruggy? <laughs> yeah. As Verbruge pointed out, <laughs> disembodied approaches of physical education were not possible for black women because they are judged on their corporeality. How would you describe an embodied approach to PE versus a disembodied approach? Um, An embodied approach is more holistic and it doesn't separate the mind, body. It's everything is works in unison. Um, We're disembodied. And unfortunately, Dr. Allen and even currently a lot of black women um, and and black men we are, you hear it, we'll, we, we'll get the psychomotor, the athletic ability, but the cognitive um, and affective domains were not really given that much credit. And, and those cannot be separated. They are, they are a collective. And so during Dr. Allen's time, um, you know, from enslavement to even current day, Black women tend to be hypersexualized, you know, through the slave master raping many um, women, black women who were enslaved, to the notion of the black athlete, the policing of the body. You can think of Serena Williams, um, whose body type is not a stereotypic um, white female tennis player or the same. So a lot of policing of her body, policing of clothing, and just, it, 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 we're only, you know, so, so many people in the media are only focused on her body and not her, her contributions to the game, her intellect that she brings to the game, her hard work. It's, oh, well, she's got a black woman's body and they treat her in a negative way. And so these are negative messages that Black women receive all of the time. I mean, the media is their front and center with these messages, but they're in the classrooms, they're in the gymnasium. We're good enough for sport, but we're not good enough for a host of um, other aspects of American life. And so I think that one of Alan's preachings of that inner beauty was to address that this external beauty is actually a little bit superficial and it, and it is, and it is a, a, a separate component. And, you know, you actually are more beautiful when you're, when you work from within. And so I think if you start to look at the mental health issues that we're starting to address. So I think that inner beauty taps into all of those aspects, you know, what good is a, a nice physical body if your mental body is unwell? What, is, what good is a physical body if your 
your your diet is poor or your your physical body is going to be negatively impacted by that beauty within. So I think it's not a superficial sense of, the, of beauty. It is these things are connected. They are embodied. And um, but, you know, we're being judged by just the exterior, um, which is different than um, the majority population. I could kind of see that very evident in just how lessons were supposed to be structured within the district. Mm -hmm. And that was one that bugged me very much when I first transferred from a charter, which I had a lot of control and was able to do a lot more holistic approaches. And then just the focus on moderate to physical activity and how that was kind of described during my transition definitely shows a disembodied approach. Mm -hmm. And where you go across the county, which Philadelphia borders some of the richest counties in the country, it's a completely different perspective of education in PE. It's not disembodied. It's ironically mm -hmm. embodied. Mm -hmm. So this is like purpose of this whole podcast is kind of hopefully shift some of those perspectives of people that do teach within yeah, urban environments because it's a part of the larger conversation. I mean, you know, if we're looking at the recent killings of black people by police and, you know, you hear these comments, well, they were criminals or they, they had a past and, or when a black person does something negative, they make a bad choice or decision, we're evil. And no one considers our mental health. And if anyone's going to be mentally impacted, it should be Black American people. I mean, you can't, you can't have come from enslaved, an enslaved group of people and not be traumatized and not carrying that baggage over and over and over again. And I'm not sure if you saw... I think her name is Tamika Mallory. She was, she's one of the leaders in the Black Lives Movement. And I think she said it so well. She said, we learn violence from you. Mm -hmm. We learn looting from you. And that is correct. And I think I mentioned earlier, the oppressed take on the behaviors of the oppressor. And it's amazing how people don't, think that black people suffer from mental illness as a result of the historical trauma and the modern day trauma. And so, but if it's a white person doing the same thing, it's, oh, they've got mental health issues. We really need to, we need to get them help. And even how we police or lack thereof. So if there is a drug problem, in the black community, it's a black person, they call the police. Mm -hmm. If it's a drug issue in the white community, they call so a social worker, mental health provider. And the, the whole um, premise of mental health is, is just disregarded or ill-regarded. And, and again, that is a, that's the disembodied approach that the U.S government and our institutions have placed on black bodies but we use as you pointed out that holistic embody well 
If they're going to do drugs, they must have some mental health concern. If they're going to be violent and shoot up a school, they must have some mental health. And so I think that we need to take a, a hard look at how we, how there are two different Americas, um, depending on what you look like and what, how much money you have um, or wealth that you have. Um, and that, yeah, I could go on and on and on, but you get the gist of what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Yeah, no, I'm totally on board. It's just like I said before, like Philadelphia County, one of the poorest big cities. But then we have the main line, which is like the one of the most concentrated places of wealth in the country. And it's just disturbing that you can have one of the top 10 high schools or top 20 high schools in the country bordering one of the worst. Yeah. Like it's just disturbing and how like that inequity is so close, but then people don't take time to explore in a new neighborhood. They don't take time to understand somebody else's perspective and Mm -hmm. you just dig your heels in. And it's interesting in that people are so stuck in nature and they don't like to explore things that make them uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, Hopefully a lot of what's been going on with the protests and movement isn't like I've been talking with friends, um, like the flavor of the week. Like it's not just like the popular thing to do. It's something that is innately, if you do believe in like being American, quote unquote, like that's the most American thing you can do right now is fight power and fight oppression and support the people that need the help. This is a unique um, time in our history. And I think, you know, uh, the combination of COVID-19, those health disparities, in addition to the killing of Ahmed Aubrey and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and a host of others. And she, I mean, she was on the front lines. So we have a lot of work to do, but I think that black people, obviously white people, there've been a lot of white people protesting, brown people, Asian people are tired and so I think we will continue to talk, scream, shout until our voices are heard. As they should. The next quote, this is a big quote. Um, <laughs> sometimes they're just too good not to keep the whole thing in. Um, in contrast to shape America's criteria, it is evident that good teaching in the black American community is heavily student and community centered and values differ from Shape America's Teacher of the Year criteria. Outstanding black teachers who make significant contributions to students, schools, and communities may not align with the institutional paradigms of Shape and PE. So this one, like, just from my experience is teaching in an urban setting where I'm the minority. Um, it's pretty evident, like, just from your quote and my experiences that in order to be a quality teacher, it has to be a very democratic process. And one thing that has bothered me is over the years, and I'll mention Dylan Landy because we spoke a couple months ago and he reminded me that shape America's standards are anti-democratic, like just like my perspective of it. And it's just un-American in nature. So 
in theory, good teaching in the black community is an example of democracy in action. So like, would you like to kind of maybe expand like why you wrote that quote and like what is heavily student community centered for teachers who may not be familiar with that? Okay, um, we put students first and I guarantee you any black teacher teaching black students goes home they probably have tears on many days. It's personal. And do you have white teachers who do that? Sure you do, but I think they're in the minority. And I've been told by students, I shared this on the, my earlier call when I was leaving a, a school in Southeast Raleigh. And I told the students that this was going, that particular year was my last year, going to be my last year. And they said, uh, no, you love the black kids too much. And so that comment lets you know, and the students know that you are putting them first. They know the burden that you are carrying when you go home, when you show up. Um, they understand and recognize that you have higher expectations in physical education than many of their math, science, English teachers do. Um, and they will report to you the um, instances where they have suffered from or experienced racism from an educator who is supposed to be in their corner. And so I think the student-centered and the community um, focus is the ethic of care and the ethic, ethic of love. And I, I firmly believe most, not all, Black teachers love their students. It's not just a job for them. Um, they are really trying to work against the system to, to change the system, but the system is so broken, it's hard to do. But it is possible. And so I'm looking at your notes and I heard what you said about being un-American and, and anti-democratic. Well, I think that we have this belief that America's democratic. And we have this belief that um, shape and PE may be un-American, but those are very American. I think they are more white American um, values um, in nature. But so I think that we need to really redefine what democratic principles look like. Is it democratic principles for some, or is it democratic principles for, for all? And even Black people who have arrived, so to speak, whether it's academically, financially, and all the other areas where we, how we measure success, at the end of the day, your race trumps all of that. Um, black professionals, Black athletes, Black um, billionaires are still pulled over um, by police for no reason because they're driving a fancy car that they actually happen to be able to afford. And so I would say that there is a critical race theory called interest conversion. And, and this is what I'm, con I'm, I'm concerned with all the Black Lives Matter and you know, on the surface, it may appear that, oh, we're, we're pro-Black, we're pro-Brown, we're, we're pro-everyone. 
But at, if you look, as we pointed out, that these boards are all white, it's still supporting that racist structure where whites only, the whites benefit by being at the top and everybody else is underneath. And so I think we will be democratic when police officers first thought is to um, deescalate versus shoot to kill. And so I think that we have a long way to go. So I actually, I would say they are very American and they service a certain type of American. Um, the shape standards, the shape teacher of the year criteria. I mean, it's still, and I told the, the people on the call today, people should be outraged by not having one black teacher of the year at the district and national level in an 11 year span. Like, where is the outrage? And so that's what, that's why I said, these are very, uh, these are white American principles. Mm -hmm. And as illustrated in the data. So, yeah. It was uh, very poignant. I was just looking at it from the lens of Jason Stanley in the book, how propaganda works and how people utilize actual democratic ideals for nefarious purposes. And that's kind of your answer was spot on what I was looking for. I think that's very hard for a lot of people that are quote unquote, pure blood Americans. And like, they just can't handle that challenging of their heritage, which is silly yeah. to me, but that's like a completely different topic. Yeah, and they're not, and they're, and they're, not pure blood it's the native american is actually has has the right <laughs> has the birthright birth rights rather to to actually stake that claim so i mean even even that concept we could go on and on and on but <laughs> oh yeah we, we definitely could um i definitely love breaking down the trying to think of the right word to use just breaking down how much like we have to unlearn because so much of what we were taught is just false in nature and that's just very hard for people to realize that they've been lied to for so long and they fell for it mm -hmm. yeah, and it's just the the being aware you know being aware of this is actually you know like it is more difficult for a black person in America to make it than a white person. And so are there white people who struggle? Of course there are. Are there poor whites who it's a, a cycle of poverty? And of course there is. But if you have the same saying with the black person, the black person's walk is nine times out of 10 going to be more challenging. I mean, at the same economic, you know, all, all of those being equal except race, it's still going to be more challenging for that black family or student or child. And, and so I think when we have the same opportunities for all, then, you know, we can perform, we can have that, you know, for lack of a better term, um, that more perfect union. Mm -hmm. All right, the next quote, which was actually the last sentence, I believe, of the article. And I just kind of like, 
your take on it and what it meant to you when you wrote it. Okay. Students of color who have black and brown physical educators in the gymnasium and on a national stage would contribute to better academic and social outcomes for all. So that statement is coming from the understanding that national teacher of the year awards are, are they're huge. They're the most prestigious award for many of the dis teaching disciplines, but certainly physical education. And while we are talking about recruitment of black and brown physical educators, um, sometimes the appearance of disengagement from some of our students, especially the girls, those moments are significant because representat representation matters. And so when these students see a black PE teacher of the year, I think it transform, it's, trans it's transformative and it sends them on a different trajectory because if they don't see any black PE teachers, one, and if they don't see any of them acknowledge for the, the hard work that they do, the good work that they do, then it leaves them without an opportunity or the belief that they can actually become a physical educator or become an educator in general because they're not on display in that manner. Mm -hmm. And I think culturally, many Black educators are not going to toot their own horn. Like it's, it has to come from really the students, the community. Um, they're the ones who validate our good teaching or poor teaching. And mm -hmm. so I think that is a voice that is not heard among um, the, the teacher of the year criteria is that we are not listening to what, what impact is this physical educator actually making in your life. And as I shared with the call earlier, on the call earlier, it is much easier to teach students whose basic needs are met. If they've had breakfast, they have parents at home who are involved, they have money for extracurriculars, you know, um, they're easy to teach, period. And mm -hmm. so just getting your students to engage in a lesson consistently, um, that's good teaching, especially when the PE teacher before you let them sit out, you know, roll the ball and things of that nature. And so I think that, again, we are looking at um, a race and class different um, because if you go into affluent black neighborhoods you 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 have less problems period and so a lot of that is the education the affluence of the families and things of that nature but when you have a segment of our population that is poor and of color um, it's a lot more challenging to be physically literate in, in those environments or physical literacy and how it's defined or described. And mm -hmm. so I'm pushing for a call in this paper that I'm working on with a colleague that we will address being physically aware. I prefer because that. Because I think that some of the physical literacy actually 
serves as a detriment to black and brown children because it's coming from a and poor children because it's coming from a, a white privileged point of view. Yes, I, I do agree with that. I've been contemplating like what's the actual purpose of new definition of physical literacy and mm-hmm. like how problematic it is and mm-hmm. that new push. And when you mentioned when a new teacher comes in and they have to fight from the concept that the previous students had, you know, sitting on the wall, not doing anything and just doing what they want. Like I've been in that situation coming into a school now mm-hmm. for the second time. And that's been the norm and it's disturbing because it's much more the norm than what people want to admit. Mm-hmm. And it's just not in your standard, like suburban middle-class affluent school. It's happening a lot of times in the urban environments or areas where it's predominantly black or like it, it baffles me when a teacher that I actually had this conversation with over the summer, he told me as like advice, I don't think he knew that I was actually teaching for four years at that point and doing pretty well. I just switched from charter to public. And he told me just, you know, just give the kids A's and it's all good. Like then nobody's feelings get hurt. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? He's like, yeah, we just, you know, they come in, they go to their spots, we do some stuff, and then that's it. And at that point, yeah. I just didn't have the energy to continue that conversation because yeah. I already knew where it was going. But that's sad, sadly a norm for a lot of teachers, and that yes. really does and that's why One of many reasons why PE is about to be extinct. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I remember those. I had a student, I'll never forget, Shahid Nellums. He said, I was Mrs. Blackshear at the time. He said, Mrs. Blackshear, why do you care? Because he saw everyone around did not. Mm-hmm. And I said, you'll appreciate it when you get older. Because I, I, I was not going to go in there and not do my job and have low expectations, no or low expectations for students. And at the time I said, I didn't get a master's degree to roll the ball. I I went, I'm coming to teach, Mm -hmm. (laughs) have students learn. And so, yeah. And and unfortunately many of the, um, you know, it's very difficult to fire a teacher in many districts and we need to be strong and fire bad teachers or teachers who are doing harm. And you know, that's another conversation. I don't have the answers to all, you know, that question, but we do need to, you know, a- actions speak volume and volumes. And right now we really don't care about black, brown and poor children no. in, in public schools in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Which then brings me to my next question. So do teacher of the year candidates, do they tend to come from schools who have minimal experiences with precarity or do they tend to be from more like affluent schools? They tend to come more from, from affluent schools. Now I didn't, I don't have that data directly, but that has been shared with me that they're coming from um, affluent schools where they don't have an issue. And it's somewhat um, a popularity contest too. So no, I, th- I would say they have minimal experiences 
with the exception of, like I said, the, the first black female um, teacher of the year in PE teacher of the year from the Southern District. This is their first ever. And that district was the last district to integrate, to allow black people into their organization. And so that's huge. And so her walk was extremely difficult. And that that really is one of the reasons why I want to do this story on her and Kanidra. So to share their voices, to let the the country hear what they actually had to deal with in order to earn teacher of the year. Kanidra was state level. And I mean that I mean, my next question, I, I already know your answer, but maybe expand upon the obvious, which we're probably going to agree is yes. <laughs> Do you think the national standards, state standards, institutions that produce health and PE teaching candidates ignore precarity? Yes, except for students who are coming from those environments. So um, I would say... Our PEAT students, we're changing because faculty have changed and we're trying to make our, you know, help our students become more culturally aware from, you know, economics, race, gender, and a host of other factors. But I would say yes. And again, most, the, the decision makers for the national standards, state standards, and faculty at in higher ed they're mostly white Mm -hmm. um, and mostly male and so I think that's just going to be the continued lens or or and and some still have these negative perceptions of black people black academics there's a lot of literature on that and so yes, I think that they do ignore precarity and, and a host of other factors that negatively impact the outcome and well outcomes and well-being of all children. And mm-hmm. so I think people just think that it's only impacting black, brown, poor, but it starts to negatively impact everybody. In my brain, I've thought of it almost as you weaponize kids without them knowing and then they're able to reproduce everything. So I was technically a byproduct of that um, outside of just being raised by teenage parents and having like a different lens to look at. Like if I didn't have my certain situations, I would probably be exactly the same as a majority of the people that I grew up with who have no idea in their like I'll admit it, I'm like central Pennsylvania, so that's very singularly white for the most part, outside of Harrisburg and York. And that's a large population of individuals who are very, quote unquote, all lives matter and just don't understand anything outside of like what they've seen. Would would you include Hanover in that? I haven't been to Hanover in a minute. I can't, we were the I, we were there yesterday. Oh, you were there yesterday. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. Yes. Uh, growing up, there are plenty of stories of things that I've heard and seen that still disturb me to this day. But mm-hmm. 
I'm glad to live in Philly now. It's a little bit <laughs> It's a lot better. Good. Um, so I guess this leads me to the last question. So like what would you want somebody to know that is in a position as a teacher? Like what's their next step? Because this cannot just be top down. Like teachers have to kind of develop that voice and understand like what should teachers be doing right now to help combat this issue? And I, I don't think I got that question. <laughs> I know I, I reworded that one. That's okay. I would think, I would say educators need to educate themselves on the population of students that they're teaching and ask themselves, are they really giving their students the best? And that would require a reflection on attitudes and behaviors. Um, for example, tracking disciplinary behaviors between your black and white students, or you know, if you're in an all-black school, how many how many infractions, you know, are you, you know? So I'm I'm big on collecting data because data can inform decisions, and so I think and it it's often objective, not all of the time, but even if someone, you know, if you recorded yourself teaching um, for all the, the semester, which is not that hard to do these days in many, in many districts. So I think that really taking an inventory on why are you at your school? Why are you at your school? And how can you help your students be the be their best selves you know and so i think a lot of reflection and soul searching because if you walk into that space and you think that your black students are inferior they're not capable then you, you shouldn't be in the classroom you shouldn't be in any classroom but you certainly shouldn't be in a predominantly black or brown school and so i think soul searching and really being honest. But unfortunately you have those people who do have those negative racist beliefs and they're, they are just there for a paycheck. Mm -hmm. That's it. They, they could care less the outcome of these students without realizing they're instrumental in some of the net negative outcomes that we see. And so maybe to help them see how they are contributing to some of these school to prison pipelines that have been well documented um, in the literature that's that's going along with our children that we're, we're setting up the environment for you know more prison-like conditions and so i think that really needs to be explored and interrogated and leaders need to hold these faculty um, accountable. But again, I think if you, when you have a more diverse leadership team, I think people are better able to identify and say, you know, that teacher's just a bad apple and we need to get rid of that, that teacher. And so, and I think language like that needs to be explicit. If a teacher is doing harm, they, it shouldn't be this, you know, 
it shouldn't always be diplomatic. You know, on 100 occasions, I noticed that you um, are reprimanding the black boys for minor infractions and your white students are doing the same and worse, yet you let them, you know, get away with it. What, what's going on there? And so that's why I think data gathering, data collection. And fortunately, even, even though it's not always safe or it doesn't always, the outcome doesn't always um, end how we want, we have been recording racist acts and there's still no punishment or accountability. And so I think there just needs to be more um, oversight of what are our, our teachers doing to our students and the impact. So I think that, and it, that's hard work. I mean, you may increase the number of teacher observations. They may not be punitive initially, but you know, we've had a report, a significant amount of reports from students. We're going to be monitoring your behavior for three months, period. But you have to have leadership teams who understand what physical education is, what good physical education is, and so forth. And, um, but, you know, I, that may not happen in my lifetime, unfortunately. Well, I'm going to be positive, and I hope that we're able to get to that point where we're able to hold people accountable because it doesn't, nothing works if there's like no accountability to anything. And just knowing from my experience teaching high school, kids aren't dumb. K to 12, they're not dumb. They know who's there. When you mentioned the ethic of care and like a pedagogy of love, essentially, they know and mm -hmm. they will rat on the teachers. That has probably been one of the most interesting things throughout my years there is how often kids will call out teachers but like you said who's stepping up to correct a teacher mm -hmm. who's stepping up to correct the administrator who's stepping mm -hmm. up to make it right and i hope it changes but we'll yeah see. and you know I've, you know i've had many students over the years report oh this teacher is racist and so forth and then if you're going to the administrator who has the same views, you know, what's the point? And then students become disengaged because when students, from my experience, all types of students, when they know that you're in it and you care and you love them and their well-being is front and center, you can get them to do anything anything so this this idea that our kids don't want to learn or well, what are you doing to turn them off <laughs> it's like you said a lot of self-reflection and being honest mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, there are other don't get me wrong there are other factors it does take a village mm -hmm. it does take um parental involvement in those in those things but there are certain things that the teacher has absolute control over um, and is choosing not to, to do good by students. Absolutely. Now I'm gonna flip the script 
as the last part before we uh, close out. Okay. Is there anything that you would like to say or anything you would like to add on? Do you have any questions for me or are we good? Um, so what got you started in doing these podcasts? So long story short, um, I was actually on Dave Carney's podcast just on a whim about a year ago um, when I was on vacation and in the middle of transition from high school to elementary. And as I made that transition, I was struggling with reconnecting with elementary and then I finally got there and then COVID happened because I haven't taught elementary in a number of years. But during that time, I was got back in contact with Dylan Landy and we were just talking and he recommended a book, Precarity, Pedagogy, and Physical Education by David Kirk. So I read it and that just kind of like set sparks off. And I was like, this is exactly like the context that I'm teaching and this is the exact context that nobody is actually talking about and representing and having that discussion and giving people tools that work in that environment. So it was very much Dylan Landy, Dave Carney, and Risto, as well as obviously David Kirk's book. So okay, fantastic. So this is me giving back from what the community has taught me that I've taught in since the South Bronx, Philadelphia. Okay. So. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely. I just want to thank you for the opportunity um, to discuss my scholarship and hopefully, you know, move the needle a little bit. And no, I don't know. I don't have anything else to add. I think you did a good job of covering some key points of the paper. And I appreciate that you are in the trenches. It is not easy work if you're doing it well. And, you know, I'm happy that you have found a good home and, and you're, you're working to make change, changes within your institution and the organization at large. Well, thank you. Um, well, that leaves us to the end of the show. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, once again, thank you, Dr. Blackshear, for taking the time and energy to engage for Wrapping PE. Uh, please check out the resources provided in the description. If you can, subscribe to our podcast. If you have any questions or would like to be a guest on the show, you can email me at wrappingpe at gmail.com. Goodbye for now, but until the next time, I would like to wish you peace and love.